What's up, everyone? Welcome to Security Squawk Podcast. I'm Brian Horning. I have Randy Bryan here with me today. Andre's, again, taking the week off. We're going to have to have a talk with him about that. What do you think, Randy? Yeah, we really need to talk to him about, about that. Hopefully he's watching. We can give him a hard time while we're doing the show. Yeah, why not? <clears throat> so if you're out there, Andre, uh, get back here in the studio recording. We know you're on vacation, but uh, we need you here. There's a lot of things going on. So welcome to the podcast that talks about the business of cybersecurity. The goal of the podcast is to educate as many people as we can about cybersecurity. And hopefully people start to learn some things and take some pre- personal responsibility around their own cybersecurity and really start to understand what the threats are and how they can protect themselves. This isn't a tech podcast, uh, although we have a pretty uh, decent uh, audience from our MSP community. Um, we really break this stuff down uh, to you know layman's terms, to levels everyone can understand. So you can, you know, even if you are an employee of a company and you might not own a business, you can still do things to help protect, you know, your job, you know, your company, where you work, the data, the customer data that you're entrusted with, all that good stuff. So real quick, remember, Randy and I don't get paid for the show. We do this out of the goodness of our heart. We take time out of our day to educate everybody. So if you learn something, share on our podcast. That's all we ask for you, share it out to your friends and family. Let them know that this exists. It's simple. You just go to your favorite podcasting platform, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Audible. We're in like a million places. Just grab the link from there, share it out, and let people know that they should be listening to a podcast where they can uh, learn cybersecurity and learn what's going on out there and how they can protect themselves. So uh, that's it for me. You guys are awesome helping us grow the channel. We got the stats. We're growing every single time we upload an episode. And this is episode 30 for us, dude. You, you Can you believe it? Yeah, I can believe it, especially since it's like my fifth one. So. <laughs> yeah, you, are, you are totally uh, accurate on that. But we are happy that you decided to uh, take the plunge and, and join us on this uh, uh, on this endeavor. So today we're going to talk about uh, just a real quick update on some things around the uh, 4th of July, uh, Kaseya VSA ransomware attack. We're going to dive into that and update everybody a little bit on what's going on with the uh, with Kaseya, what's going on with uh, Biden and Putin, and what's going on with our evil, the, the group behind the attack. Uh, and then we're going to talk about, we're going to jump in on the second half of the podcast. We're going to get into what companies and what people need to do to start really protecting themselves, as told by our friends over at CISA. We brought it up last week on the show. We talked about, you know, um, a, a um, chart, I guess, or some kind of infographic they, that they put out. And we're going to pull that up and we're going to go through what they're saying, analyze it and, and break it down for you. So you understand it and really understand, you know, what advice CISA is is giving everyone out there. So that's what the show is going to look like. Uh, but before we get into that content, how'd your week go, Randy? What's new? Not much uh, new around here. Just keeping up with everything that's going on. Um, there's a lot of good stuff we're going to talk about today. And I'm, I'm pretty excited to uh, to get into it. You know, you did mention that we're not officially a tech, you know, a tech podcast, I think, as tech People, though, we ought to sometimes be um, be uh, careful because sometimes we uh, use words that 
nobody knows what they are, especially three-letter acronyms. So <laughs> anyway, it's great to oh, be here today. And, uh, look, <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, uh, but uh, it's great to be here today. I'm excited about getting started on this content. Yeah, I am too. Um, I had an interesting week. Uh, people don't know. Um, I'm really enjoying this whole thing that I decided to start doing with, with the press, right? So I've been, I've been in the press a lot lately, you know, helping people understand what the heck is going on out there. Um, CNN, Forbes, Fortune. I've been on a lot of local news stations. Um, I met with a industry magazine yesterday that's doing a big, or that was Monday, doing a big kind of expose on on cybersecurity that I'm going to be quoted in a lot. I was I, I was uh, on the on the phone with uh, BBC News yesterday for about an hour and a half. Um, talking to them about ransomware and cyber attacks. So wow, that's awesome. It's really cool for me to go through this and really um, the attention that this is garnering and 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 all this stuff because this is important stuff and it's important to me. And I feel like I can educate people and help them. That's why I'm doing this. Um, that's why you're going to see me in the news even more. Um, you know, you develop these relationships with these reporters, and you know, word spreads referrals, you know, people talk and other reporters are reaching out to you, asking you for insight and quotes on things. So um, it's really cool because I got to share my insights, not just on ransomware, but other aspects of, of technology and cybersecurity as a result of, of all this. And I'm having a lot of fun doing it. So, um, you know, look for me in a, in a local media publication near you because, uh, you know, it's I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of success around that. And I'm, I'm happy that I have that platform to do that. So um, that's about it. That's, my, that's been my my exciting week is, is talking to a lot of reporters. So that's really awesome, man. It's fun. It is fun. It's it's different. I didn't think I would uh, I, I would enjoy it as much as I did. And I honestly didn't think that people would want to hear from me as much as they're asking. So uh, it's cool in both respects. So uh, let's jump right into it. Let's. I'm not going to bring up an article. Let's kind of. What do you know since the last time we talked in the last week? Let's just talk about hmm. Saya first. What the hell is going on over at that company? Um, where are their partners? What do you know? Man, I'm. Uh, I've heard a lot of people being concerned about at Kaseya lack of. Uh, priority on cybersecurity. Um, and this is not something that I can um, verify firsthand. I just hear a lot of people, a lot of chatter. People are concerned, you know, over, and this, this is all stuff that's going to have to be talked about because this is such a big hack. But people, people being concerned, was Kaseya making security a top priority? Were they doing the things that they needed to do? Um, those are questions that people want to know and that are going to have to be asked and answered. Um, and then also, you know, um, just everything with them keeping up to date and all of that. And I know um, they were offline with their on-prem servers. When did they finally come back online? Was it Sunday? They're hosted. Yes. Uh, I believe they were in the process on Monday, getting everybody back online. Right. I know at four o'clock, I had happened to look 
Monday around four o'clock Eastern. And it, I think I read that they were about 95% back up. And then, you know, for the, uh, uh, for the host, for the people that host their own, the on-prem people, I think it's just basically when they can get through the process of securing everything and updating the patch. And, you know, it's kind of on them to get back up and running. I, uh, I hear a lot of chatter. Also people wanting to make sure that other Kaseya products are given the budget and the priority that they need to make sure that their products are also secure. Yeah, so, unfortunately, Kisei is going to take a beating over this, but quite frankly, they're not the only ones that have this problem. And, you know, nobody should, nobody should take this as an opportunity to beat that company up because I'm sure if we shined a spotlight on other companies, we would, you know, find similar Similar things. I will add to what you said real quickly um, because I was a programmer uh, in a former life when I worked for the Department of Defense. And um, the code base that was being used in Kaseya that I believe was part of the exploit or at least during the process of evaluating how this could have happened, uh, the folks over at um, Mandiant FireEye discovered a code base known as ASP Classic, which is a very old version of a programming language. I used it back in 1999 uh, when I worked for the Navy, and then I stopped using it in 2002, and I left the Navy in 2004. So we were two years into .NET, ASP.NET, which was the follow-on after ASP Classic ASP was retired. Um, and, you know, it's been about 15, 17 years now since ASP Classic was officially, you know, deprecated, you know, by Microsoft basically saying that we're no longer going to support this and you really shouldn't right. be using it. And this was something that was found to be in the production code base of the Kaseya VSA software. You're, you're talking 20 plus year old code. Um, so these are the types of things that we're going to find as we see software companies get hacked like this, like we see with SolarWinds, like we see with um, with Kaseya, um, but they weren't attacked the same way. I'm not here saying that. Mm -hmm. SolarWinds was attacked by code being able to be legitimately or put in legitimate software mm -hmm. by people who had access to a, the network-related a network related to SolarWinds mm -hmm. product development. Could have been a programmer's computer. Right. This was a basically a, taking advantage of vulnerability within software that runs kind of publicly out on the internet. Um, so if anything, this should go and show you or, or make people aware of the fact that these cyber criminals have a vast array of skills to uh, try to attack companies, right? You know, they, it's not just one thing that they're doing over and over again and being successful. They're being successful uh, because they have a wide skill set that they can pull from, whether it's different people or super geniuses that just know how to do this crap. I know, I know people that know how to do all this crap. Like, they, like I know people that are very good. They, they know how to do all these different things. They know how to penetrate networks. They know how to penetrate software. Um, they're rare breeds. Um, but it just goes to show you that it's not one thing. But what we are seeing on the company side is that there's 
basically, like we, I think we said it a lot on the podcast the last time, this is cybersecurity 101 type stuff that these companies are missing. And when, you know, it's, it's that old saying in this business, right? They only need to be right one time and they're in. We have to be right all the time, right? So, and that's the challenge that companies are up against. They have to well, be right and have to protect things all the time. Go ahead. The, uh, the, big, the big issue, at least for Kaseya, what this brings up is that every single line of code that a company uses needs, they need to bring in a security company now and go over it. And this is actually what you mentioned about this old, you know, this old chunk of code from ASP. That's actually pretty common. That, oh. kind, that type of thing, if they're not careful of people having stuff in their bag of tricks, they hire a programmer, they've got a bag of tricks they use, or maybe some old software from 1995, you know, that was responsible for monitoring hard drives. That company gets bought up. The software gets sucked into something else that gets sucked into something else. And I just made that up, by the way. But next thing you know, 20 years later, that little component is now part of VSA. And then, boom, it's a vulnerability. And I wanted to uh, clarify clarify that the, the vulnerab vulnerability thing is pretty scary because, you know, it may even tie back to the solar solar winds leak because with the solar solar winds leak, they were able to get source code. We know from Microsoft that they pulled the source code for exchange and then they found vulnerabilities and then they, not this group, but other groups, they exploited that. So, you know, how did they find this vulnerability? Um, how did they know that it was there? You know, it is some old code from, from the 90s. How did they know that it was there? You know, bot bottom line is these companies really are going to have to up their game and get their code. Um, well, the, the question, you know, I, I, I monitor a lot of things and I and I even heard people go as far. And I'm not saying I agree with this or uh, and I, I'm bringing it up because you kind of alluded to it and what you just said there. But, you know, we talked about on the podcast last week, the Netherlands company that tipped off Kaseya about this particular problem. Right. Um, and in the time that they they disclosed it to Kaseya, and Kaseya supposedly started working on it, cyber criminals were able to figure out the same thing. Now, did they figure it out, or were they tipped off? Right. Right. Is somebody you know was somebody who's in the know within that company at, in the Netherlands or or at Kaseya? Right. Uh, and then there was a report uh, that also came out, I believe, earlier this week, that basically stated. Um, that uh, what was it that so that there were like five employees ex-employees of Kaseya that were sounding the alarms of a security um I know I, I saw a story like that so you know I think Kaseya will be all right I don't you know there's a people don't know all the the VC and who's backing all these companies and I would venture to say that a lot of this is going to lead to a lot of consolidation with who owns these different companies because some of these companies are owned by the same VC company, or we might start to see pressure on on these VCs from the government to not have these types of investments, you know, because they only care about the the monetary, the, the right. money side of it. They don't right. care about the security, and, and maybe that's not such a good idea. Um, somebody had asked me 
recently if this was like a Ma Bell type of situation, right? Who knows? Mm -hmm. um, it could be. But um, I do want to say, and I want to wrap up talking about Kaseya so we can kind of move into talking about um, our evil and and uh, what's going on with the government's uh, handling of this. But, uh, you know, <clears throat> um, I don't know. I would have to say that I cover a lot of cyber attacks on my YouTube channel and I, and I cover a ton of them. And I always talk about how companies, especially in the beginning, don't do a great job handling these situations. I, I see two camps. Either they don't give enough information or they give too much. And I think mm -hmm. Kaseya fell into the, the giving too much information, uh, trying to do damage control. I think their heart was in the right place. But I think some of the messaging um, didn't help their case. Let's, I'm just going to say it that way. So what are your thoughts on, on Kaseya? Yeah, I mean, I think overall, I know I know that they may have said too much, but saying too much helps. Okay, so I'm not saying they should have said too much, but I know that if you if you're open and forthright, it helps to rebuild trust. Um, so, you know, they may be okay after this. You know, I I personally am really enjoying the fact that they've that they've been open about talking about it. Um, and have been forthright, you know, maybe they have been saying too much. I'm not sure on that, but it's, it's, to me, it's better than not saying anything at all. So moving on to our continue kind of what's related to this. So the fallout from, from the Kisei attack obviously has gotten the attention of lawmakers and has prompted a phone call from, President Biden to uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. I believe the phone call took place last Friday and it did. It was um, it's right here in the article. And he wants them to take action to stop persistent ransomware attacks against the U.S. and said there will be consequences. Um, so we went from the post G7 summit that these two had where he gave them the list of 16 um, critical infrastructure areas that were off limits. We saw a hospital attack. We saw IT companies attack. We saw local governments attacked as a result of the Kaseya attack, which are all on that list. And he made a phone call. So uh, where do you think we're at with this? Hmm. Well, I can tell you where I hope we're not at. I hope we're not at the, the infamous red line in the sand like we had in, uh, I think it was Syria about 10 or 15 years ago that really didn't go anywhere and it really wasn't enforced. I mean, if you're going to call and you're going to say something like this to a leader of another country, you've got to be willing to back it up and you can't just be, you know, saying things to look good or whatever. Um, you know, I think at the same time, you know, he's, it seems like he said it in a way, you know, that Putin can still save face. You know, a lot of these countries, that's real important that you let them save face if you're going to get them to go along with it. Um, you know, bottom line is a lot of this stuff is originating from from their basically their territory. So, you know, it would be extremely helpful to have have them helping with keeping this under control just like if they were originating from the U.S. I mean, you and I, 
would expect without even a second thought, if it was originating out of the U.S., we would want our government involved and we would want our government going after them because they're criminals. It's against the law to do this kind of stuff. So, you know, we should expect the same from another country. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of picking up on this is the fact that um, the, the, one, of the, one of the things that Putin had said early on is that he wasn't going to do anything because the U.S. isn't providing enough information on who these people are or, or enough evidence, right? And it's interesting because in the article, it points out that he said, Biden said, I made it very clear to him that the United States expects when a ransomware operation is coming from his soil, even though it's not sponsored by the state, we expect him to act, given enough information to act on who that is. So that would lead you to believe that they gave him information on who that was. Um, so, so it's interesting because, uh, you know, the next article that I want to go into is that the various websites that this uh, R Evil hacking group uses um, are are mysteriously down, and nobody really knows why. So, um, I'm going to pop that up on the screen here. But major Russian-speaking ransomware gang behind JBS and Kaseya attack goes offline, right? So not only did their happy blog where, where they kind of release all the information of who they attacked or who's not negotiating with them, so here's all their information, um, that site is down. But also this, you know, and that's one thing for that site to go down, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but the um, payment sites are also reported being down. So when you get hit with ransomware, you have that text file on your on your system and it gives you a wallet address to send money to. Um, and, th and there's chat servers and communication servers that, where you can communicate with these guys. Um, these have all been taken offline or at least a, a number of them have been taking, taken offline. Um, any thoughts on, on that or what could be going on here? I mean, um, you know, like we were discussing in the green room, I mean, it could be several things. It could just be the natural course of things. Um, but potentially, I don't want to get too excited here or offer too much extra hope, but maybe something came out of that last call with Biden and Putin. And, you know, maybe the Russians have started to do something about it. Um, I'm not real hopeful there because, you know, I didn't mention this a minute ago, but I've I've read that that's actually a source of income for them. So, you know, if it is, I don't know. I don't know if that's true, uh, but I have I have heard that, you know, source of income for who I missed that for the Russians. Oh, OK, I got that, it. That's the this, you know, it's going to end up in somebody's pocket not right. just our evil you know right. it could also be that so maybe that happened it could also be you know we've heard a lot of a lot of chatter or whatever you want to call it the last few weeks we mentioned it on the podcast i think two weeks ago about how the the fbi's and other u.s agencies are talking about having the ability to strike back and you know we've always kind of kept our our cards close to our chest about these things and you know Maybe 
some government agency from the U.S. has, you know, basically reached out back to them. Um, you know, you you know, and I know that our evil's most vulnerable time was while they were in these networks um, for a counterattack. Maybe something happened then, and maybe they maybe boom they've been taken down. But then, you know, bottom line, this also could could just be the natural course of things because. You know, these groups, if they get too famous, um, they are known to go dark and then, you know, they basically rebrand themselves. So right now there are evil and, you know, they might come back, you know, in a month under a totally different name. I don't know, but it seems like a kind of bad timing because I don't know that anybody from Kaseya has paid them money yet. If they have, I don't think they've made it public, have they? I haven't read that. I'm not aware of any type of payment. And last I last I saw, they were still negotiating, and the number was down to like 50 million. So uh, it seems bad timing to take your payment servers offline. Well, not only that, it's also like as this article says, uh, Rebels blog site as well, or R Evil's blog site as well as other R Evil sites used to host decryptor programs. So like, if you pay the ransom. And you got to go somewhere to download the decryptor. Those servers are now down too, right? Maybe they got ransomware from someone else. <laughs> that would be funny. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> but but I don't think ransomware would take down these these Tor servers. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, yeah. You know, it would yeah. hit their computers and stuff. Um, and, and payment processing were all offline around one a.m. You know, this was on Tuesday, so this is like three four days after. Um, Biden made, made the phone call to Putin, which we just talked about. So a couple of things here. Um, I like to compare the dark web to like the web, the real web in 1997. So if anybody was alive and, and like dial up internet and, and surfing the internet in 1997, that's kind of like what the dark web is today. Um, it, it, the websites don't look that great, um, mainly because they're you know, geeky engineers that slap them together, not designers, so to speak. It's one reason. Um, but a lot of, you know, a lot of these sites are, are just and servers and the way that these, the, uh, the tour and the browsers work and everything, it's not uncommon for servers to go offline for, you know, two or three days and then come back up. Um, that could be what, what is happening here. I, I seriously doubt it. Um, I just because these other servers are also offline and they all went offline around around the same time leads me to believe that they were either attacked in some way or the people in charge decided that the heat was getting, you know, it was getting to right. the kitchen and we just need to lay low for a little while. Time to rebrand. Or not necessarily. I've seen them come back. Mm -hmm. You know, they just up oh, the servers back up. Right. And they went away for a little while, but now it's back up. Um, it could very well be that affiliates that are close to the center of the organization have been visited by authorities, either Russian authorities or, or who knows who. Um, and that was just enough to get these guys to just retreat a little bit and say, mm -hmm. you know, hey, we're, we're, we're going to just shut this stuff down right now. Um, I, I, I kind of believe that this means that they're not going to get paid. What if the SAIA already paid them and that's why they went dark? 
I feel like you say should tell everybody if they paid them because I would hope so. Because then the key would be out there, and maybe maybe they are working with their partners and they are giving them the key. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're gonna find out what happens eventually. It's just a matter of time. Right. Um, we're only a, a few days from you know from when they disappeared. Uh, we're only about two weeks from the actual attack at this point, point. Uh, and there's a lot to be to be figured out still. Um, you know, we're all, we're all going to find out and we're all going to, you know, hopefully be better because of it. Um, but that's kind of where we're at right now. I mean, Revel's missing. Um, and we don't know because nobody's coming forward and taking, you know, boasting or taking responsibility. They did something, which, you know, if I really look at things and say, what could be going on here? That's more how Russia operates. So if anything, Maybe the Russians kind of told these guys, like, all right, you're, you're causing way too much noise. Like, you got JBS, now you got Kaseya, you know, a um, you know, month and a half later. Like, chill. You know what I mean? Like, or, mm-hmm. or, or this business is going to go away, and you're not going to make any money, right? Because the walls are going to get so strict, and everybody's going to just – you know, the pendulum's swinging this way and it's going to swing back so hard that way that it's just going to blow this whole thing, whole thing up. Right. Um, from the way that they're doing it, right? It'll go back to the way it was. Loose groups, guys here and there hitting you up for 1,000, 2,000, 10,000, 20,000, but you're not going to see these big hits for millions of dollars like we're seeing right now. It's kind right. of where I'm at with it. So, so, you ready to jump into uh, some education? Yeah. Nice. All right, let me uh, let me stop this, and then we're going to talk about uh, we're going to educate people on these top mitigation techniques. And I'm going to I'm going to let you uh, kind of lead this one, and I will jump in. Um, which one do I want to share here? That one. Probably the top of page two. That's there's a good yep. summary on the top of page two. Yeah, I got it up. Uh, let me try to blow it up so people can actually see this. Um, so we got these mitigation techniques, right? That CISA has released. Interesting that they they go after application developer guidance for the first thing here, um, and we can go through the stats. Uh, after we go through uh, these top mitigation techniques, if we have time, but basically they're saying is these are the these are the top techniques that hackers use to get in, and here's what you guys can do to better protect yourself and and not get attacked the same way that we see other companies get attacked. Right. Down below here, they have it grouped by by different sections and they have a percentage of how often we see this as the attack vector. So this is good information, um, but just understand this is in time data. This can change at any minute, right? Something may be figured out where brute force becomes 12% and not 1.5%. So all this can move up and down, but right now at this point in time, this is kind of what we're seeing in terms of how hackers are getting in um, and how they're moving around networks, how they're, how they're able to do things. 
This one is an interesting one. This is something I have been uh, getting more smarter on, getting smarter on, I should say, uh, in the last couple months is this whole patch the hash thing and how hackers can move in a network without really having a username and password. Um, and there's certain things that you can do here to prevent this type of behavior, and I'll, and I'll try to cover that. But this is a very interesting, and I'm not surprised to see it at 30%, um, because it is something that we see a lot in our own uh, work here at Exact IT. So, so the first thing they're, they're going to recommend here, Randy, is provide secure software best practice guidance and training to application developers to avoid introducing security weakness through code. Yeah, let me um, let me back up real quick and make a comment on this. It's sure. like, so these things, there's there's thousands of things that you can do that will make you more secure. But right. they put they put these at the top of the list because here is a a small definable set that if you can do this, man, you're you're gonna you're gonna put yourself ahead as far as you can with like ten things that you're gonna be taken care of. And I think a way to look at it is like, like a car, you know, 30 years ago, you know, you were more likely to die in a crash without a seatbelt on, even though the cars had seatbelts. And so laws were passed requiring people to wear seatbelts, you know, and now, now cars have airbags on them and you can still die in a car crash and you still have a pretty decent chance of getting hurt or getting in a wreck, but They've mitigated some of the biggest risks to make it overall safer. And that's kind of the idea here. And I'm super happy. And I don't know that these are necessarily, you know, this is the top 10 things to do in no particular order, you know, no. or these are the top 10 in the best order. But I personally really like the fact that the application developer guidance is first. And I'll tell you that every time we talk to a new vendor, I'm always on a Zoom call or a phone call with the person who's in charge, whether it's the CEO and it's a smaller company or whether it's a CTO, but I'm always asking questions about this particular because I don't care how great and amazing their software is. If they're all willy-nilly about security practices, I don't want to use the software because that puts my company and my customers at risk and the solar winds hack you know was most likely because of things that fall under this category could have been as simple as a programmer just leaving their computer for a few minutes those little small that little small amount of code was added that made a backdoor and that got them the keys to the kingdom to microsoft to to some defense agency stuff and all kinds of businesses out there, it's crucial right now that companies really become aware of application developer um, security controls. You know, whether that's a, you know, you have software that monitors your software for all your changes, you know, whether you're having a daily or hourly code huddle where you're talking about changes, things have to be in place. So, and then on top of that, things that are potentially backdoors and exploits, those things have to be watched for also. So you're not leaving your software vulner vulnerable 
um, to either a vulnerability attack or a backdoor getting inserted. Um, this is crucial because software runs everything that we do basically yep. these days. Yep. So I look at this and that, I agree with all that. That was, that was uh, very thorough and I'm not going to add to it, but I am going to say that two things that I see, right? There's companies out there that are, um, Apple, they, they build software for their, that's their business. That's their core business. They develop software, they resell it, they sell it as a SaaS product or whatever. And those companies absolutely need to do a better job at this. Um, I, I've seen tons of companies where they build great tools, but from a security standpoint, they're not so great. Um, and these are companies that people buy from every day. Um, and then you have this other subset of, of development going on in the business world where the company's core business is not software development. Let's say it's financial services and they have somebody come along and build them something for their company so they can run their company. So they've had custom software built in their company that helps them run their business or you know, or do their business or generate business, what have you. Um, and they may have hired that person one time 15 years ago, and they've been using that application ever since, and nobody's touched it, updated it, evaluated it, what have you. Um, so this speaks to both, right? This speaks to the people who are, you know, their core business is software development, but this also speaks to the companies that had custom software developed at some point for their business at some point in time, and they really don't have it maintained by anybody. It's just out there, right? And that's not really following these software best practices that are recommended. So if you're a business owner and you know you have that type of software that I described, maybe it was built on Microsoft Access or maybe it was a web program that was built or maybe it was just some client application that was, that was built just for your company, um, you got to take a look at that piece of software, especially if it communicates through the Internet or over the Internet in any way, shape or form, uh, because it is susceptible to, to the types of attacks that we're talking about around this and and similar to what we saw with SolarWinds and Kaseya. So moving on, the next thing we have is user training, right? Train users to be aware of access manipulation attempts by an adversary to reduce the risk of successful spear phishing and social engineering. The, this one is, you know, they're all very important and they all work together um, in synergy, but your, your people that work for you are going to be your weakest link yep. and they need training to be aware. They need to be on their guard. You know, you don't want them losing sleep at night over it, but they need to be aware that if something something pops up, you know, usually it's in the form of an email, um, something pops up, they need to be very cautious. And with training, it's been proven that they're less likely to click on things with, with training. So, I mean, this one is extremely important. Um, you know, I know that um, both of our companies have the ability to offer a basic user training like this. Um, a security training like this to our customers, people need to have this in place at their business, some sort of security training 
that um, makes them more aware. Just so because, we, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So we don't have a basic user awareness training offering. We have a very comprehensive user awareness training that's very effective. Um, I didn't mean it like that. I meant more, um, but yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I know you did. Um, but the reality of it is, is it's very important, right? And you're going to hear a lot about uh, companies developing or creating a culture of cybersecurity if you haven't already heard about that. And this, we've proven it in our own company with our clients and, and everyone we've deployed our solution around security and awareness training too, that it really does like if you don't have a culture of cybersecurity in your business and you feel like there's no culture around security and keeping things secure, implement a user and awareness training program, one that's delivered regularly, like once a week to people's inbox where they can watch videos and get educated are the most effective ones that we see out there and start letting this tool be the thing that builds that culture of cybersecurity. You don't know how many clients have called me after we've implemented something like this and told me like, hey, I'm now hearing my employees talk about like yep. phishing emails and, and yep. this and that in the break room, at the water cooler, right. what have you. It really does start to build awareness and that spirit of, hey, we all have a role in this game for keeping our clients and our own data protected at our company. So right. Anything else you want to add about that? Because no, I, I I love the term culture yeah. of cybersecurity, um, yeah. because that's really what it boils down to. Um, Andre has uh, chimed in on a few uh, comments. He's not um, allowed. And not. talking about how um, how important it is to to mention this in your in your company, whether it's your morning huddles um, or wherever. It's talking about the need to be baked in needs to be baked in. It's not a tack on, you know, um, it's something yeah, that's part of awesome if you have culture. But I know a lot of companies that don't, you know, that don't have culture. And if you don't even if you don't, you know, emphasize culture um, in, in the same sense that maybe Randy and I and Andre are talking about it, you can at least do this to get a culture of cybersecurity built in your company. And it really right. what I always say is no employee wants to be the reason that wants to be the person who caused ransomware in a company. Right. Uh, nobody wants to be that person. But if you're not educating them on what to look for and what to do, if they do click on something, that's the other piece of this. Like a lot of people, when they, they click on something or they open something, they feel shame or they feel embarrassed. So they, they close everything real quick and like, oh, oh, look, nothing's on my screen. The big bad hacker's not here. Like nothing happened. Right. And they don't tell anybody. Yeah, you can tell IT the minute you do that. IT can look into it right away. Yep, and see if anything bad really did happen, and not find out a week later after ransomware is deployed, and then we realize that, you know, Sally in marketing clicked yep. on email she shouldn't have clicked on. So need to make sure there's no uh, shame if you know if something does happen that you just, that you are right. able to go ahead and you know report, and report it. it. Exactly. Yep. So user account management, manage and the creation, modification, use of permissions associated to user accounts. Yeah, this is basically just being aware every time a new account is created, whether that's this is on your domain, whether this is on a computer or whether this is on one of your SaaS accounts like uh, SaaS is software as a service. But like Microsoft 365, that's a SaaS account. 
And that, that means that the accounts are created in the cloud, quote unquote. And you want to be getting your security team or your security person or however it's set up needs to be aware or your IT company needs to be aware whenever new accounts are added or they're modified. That way you've always got a picture of what's going on. And, you know, if somebody creates a new admin account that you've never heard of and you don't know anything about, that's a bad sign. And it's good to know those things. Yeah, 100%. You hit the nail on the head. I don't have much to add to that. You got to know when this stuff is happening. When, you know, one of the, when I was mentioning earlier about the hash, you know, thing that hackers like to do, well, what they like to do is they like to, to basically take the hash from an admin account that's logged in on the network somewhere. And they take that hash and they move it over to another computer that they have compromised. And then they elevate the user account from a standard user to a admin on that system. And that can be done without knowing passwords, right? You know, it's this whole hashing, you know, the whole hashing thing I mentioned. Hash passing. And, and all you got to do is, you know, move that from one system to another. You don't need to know passwords. You just have to have control over the system to the point where, you know, you can elevate an account where you have a, a machine compromise. If when that user account gets elevated to an admin level, an alert should go off and somebody should be aware of it. You know, did somebody do that? Did somebody add that user to that to that admin group or did a hacker just do it? Exactly. You need to go figure out. Right. And that's that's the detect part of of the NIST cybersecurity framework. And that's what that's what a business owner needs to know here. They're not going to business owners not going to be in the weeds knowing what accounts have what access and where. But as a business owner, there are tools out there that will tell you easily and they're not expensive whether or not these account these accounts are being manipulated or not. And right. somebody who's in charge should be able to determine whether or not that was something that the IT team did or wait, we might have a problem here. Right. Yeah. Um, and these these two accounts, the I mean, these these two categories, the next one, yep. they really bleed together. They do. Because the privileged account management is along that same vein, like you said, getting getting alerts and notifications when it's escalated, but then also putting controls in place that if it does get escalated, that it even requires a verification right then and there to make it happen. Yeah, you know? and that's, that's one of the things I said on LinkedIn to Kevin Lancaster when he asked if you had a million dollars to invest in a company, what would you do? Hmm. And I said, I take the million dollars and give them to all these RMM vendors and make them put MFA in other places besides the login. And the analogy, oh, that, nice. the analogy that I used was like, when I do anything inside of my accounting software, move money, anything yep. related to moving money, I have the MFA. When I log in, I have the MFA. And when I move money, I have the MFA. It should be no different with RMMs when we're using system and root accounts to do mass changes across networks. There should be some kind of MFA involved to say, are you really here, like person doing this? And do you really want to do this? Because like deploying ransomware to your entire RMM and every endpoint in your RMM, there should be some kind of checks and balance to say, well, that's not really normal behavior. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yep. let's have a check here. And so, you know, that's kind of one of the things I said is like, we need to have MFA in other places. And when you have something like an RMM tool that has this system level access, 
Um, you know, that's one thing that we really need to, to, to shore up and, and not just in our industry in other industries as well with tools that, that have this capability. But yes, these two, these two are very related. They go together. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this one because it's the same idea and it's the same tools and processes that you would monitor these accounts for any kind of changes or adjustments to how they are really intended to be set up on your network. So right. password policies, I'm just going to preface this before you go, Randy, and say this is probably the number one way that we see breaches. Poor password management and poor password enforcement and the lack of a password manager and password reuse. So go ahead. Yeah. Um, so we may want to consider, since we're about 50 minutes into this, maybe we save the rest of these for uh, next week. Not That's sure. Um, yeah. Or keep going. It's up, up, to, up to you. But um, on the password policies, yeah. So there, there's actually, you know this, but for our, uh, our audience out there, there, there's actually like as we speak are millions, probably billions of username and password uh, combinations that are for sale on the dark web. Some are even available for free. And so a password policy not only helps protect against that, um, but just the, the whole idea that you have a password that's secure, you know, like saying password backwards and putting a dollar sign on the back, like that's not secure. You know, password one is not secure. You know, one, two, three, A, B, C, D, that's not secure. But not only is it not secure, those passwords are all, you know, readily for sale and or freely available on the dark web. And so you need a policy, policies in place for all your passwords, like minimum length, complexity, things like that. And then you also need to have your policy, your, your passwords need to be compared to a known database of leaked, you know, passwords that are available out there. And so then like, if you pick a password and it's been leaked out there, you can change it because like you're, like you're saying, this, this is a, a way for people to, to get breached. This is a way for people to get into your Facebook, you know, or into other sorts of social media. And do your VPN. Yeah, and then use that to get more and to get more and more. Well, that's exactly how, how uh, the pipeline got hacked, Colonial Pipeline. Was how? They had a, that legacy VPN that was left out there, and they had a, a username and password uh, from, an, yeah, I believe it was an ex-employee, uh, active account that was left active, and the password was on the dark web, and they used that to get in. Wow. Yeah. So – you know, and the other thing too is, is that the, although the tools that we have uh, are are really good for giving us this information, um, these tools don't look at every nook and cranny in the dark web. So while we may know a significant number of passwords that are out there, we, we we're not seeing them all. We're not seeing everything that's that's being shared on the dark web through these, these tools that, that bring this up. And many of you may be familiar with like your credit, your credit monitoring has like dark web monitoring mm -hmm. and they basically pretty much go to the same databases to pull this information. Um, so that's what I'm talking about. Like those where you get the alerts from your credit monitoring company or maybe your IT company sends you alerts that tells you your password, you know, this password was found on the dark web. 
I would venture to say that we probably only know about 30% of what's really out there. Um, so it's important that, that people have that, that, so, well, you know, dude, we are like almost an hour in, I don't care if you want to finish, we'll, we can spend five minutes on each one and just blow through these. Okay. Let um, me, uh, let me add to that. What you were just saying is sure. I would highly encourage that you use some sort of a password, um, program to help you store your passwords and also to generate random passwords. Like every password that I use now I'm generating, you know, in the 30 and 40 and 50 character level. Um, I had to sign up for something today. They limited me to 32 characters, but there's no way. Like I literally just talked to somebody yesterday who had concern that they had their, their, their uh, social media had been hacked and every single password they had was in their head. They didn't, they weren't using any kind of a password manager. They weren't using any kind of a password generator. Like that, that's got to change. Y'all have got, we've got to move away from easy to remember short passwords that we've been using forever because we end up using them on a multiple multitude of accounts. Um, and we've got to move towards uh, randomly generated uh, ones. So so we want to blow through these real quick. Yeah, if you're not using a password manager at this point, man, you're in trouble. You got to use one. You can't use the same password across multiple sites. It's you're just waiting for someone to target you and hack you when the next you know you know site gets gets compromised. Any second now, <laughs> literally. Yeah, like LinkedIn gets 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 hacked today and maybe somebody's already targeting you and, Oh, look, I got so-and-so's password. Now let me go into his bank account. Let me try to log into his VPN. Let me try this. Let me try that. And that's how it happens. Um, and don't use password. Don't think you're tricking anybody by using passwords that are kind of sort of different, but not really. Um, they have tools that run through variations very quickly and, and crack all that kind of stuff. So, you know, password managers, totally random, String of characters is the only way to go. And my, I mean, I used to recommend like sentences, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, I run fast or something like that, you know, you know, changing a couple of letters that doesn't even work anymore. So, right. So network segmentation, this is a little nerdy, so let's not get too deep in the weeds here. Um, if I'm a business owner, how are you going to explain network segmentation to me, Randy? I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to explain it. Like I'm going to go back to the car analogy. So, um, in a car, you have you have fuel, which is explosive and dangerous. You also have an engine that creates high temperatures. You have a passenger department where your most precious cargo is. You have another area for other cargo. Those things are all separated by design. And so, like, if, if, if you know, there's a leak in your gas tank, it's not going to instantly light you on fire inside your car. Your engine overheats to the point of, spewing out hot water, it's not going to harm you in the passenger department. We have to think about that with our security. And it's not just like literal actual networks, that's important, but even then in our different areas of security, like multi-factor authentication, our password keeper, things like that. When you segment, you slow down the, the criminals and it gives you a little bit more of a chance of stopping them, discovering them and, you know, coming out on top, um, if you will. And I think I mentioned this in a podcast um, a few months ago, 
very, very large financial company um, here in my area. I won't go into any more details than that was hit by a, a tragic um, BIOS infecting um, malware. They had their, their company was segmented that whole department. They, they just basically threw away all the computers and bought a new one. And if they hadn't have been segmented, it would have taken over the entire, the entire company because it had lateral movement capabilities and the computers were no longer usable unless you replaced the motherboards on them. So yeah, bottom so line was that that segmentation protected the rest of the com of the company. And I think it's important to point out to anyone who doesn't know uh, who's listening that uh, when hackers get onto the network, they don't just go and deploy ransomware right away. It could be weeks before they deploy ransomware, right? They're in there trying to find data, trying to learn who you are, trying to learn you know, what your company does, how much revenue you have, so they know what they can negotiate for uh, an amount for on a ransom. Um, but the other thing that they're doing is they're looking for your backups. And they're looking to destroy those backups before they deploy the ransomware so they have a better chance of getting paid. Um, that's why we recommend making sure you have your backups segmented on another network that you can only get to from a few locations, you know, maybe one machine in your network where you can get to that backup location, or maybe you can't get to it at all from your inside your network. Um, so one of the things I would absolutely recommend that you check with your IT team on Mr. Business Owner is you ask them if our backups are on the same network as everything else or are they segmented. So you know, if a hacker gets on our network, they can't easily get to it and destroy it. So I'm going to leave it at that. And then we're going to move into NIP, Network Intrusion Prevention. So this is a perimeter type thing, um, you know, getting in, busting down the front door from the outside, breaking through that firewall. Um, configure network intrusion prevention systems to block malicious file signatures and file types at the network boundary. So in a nutshell, this is just saying, Make sure you have something on your firewall that's scanning the network traffic that's going over that firewall in case, you know, a hacker is inside and he wants to start downloading really bad tools to do really bad stuff on your network. Your firewall should be able to find this stuff and, and pick it up and block it. Anything yeah, that, else you want to add? That's basically it. And I would also <laughs> add to that that your firewall should be, from a port standpoint, should be whitelist only. So both ways in allow and out. Allow list. Yeah, basically, basically, yeah. Um, everything is blocked if it's not allowed. Yep. Um, that way, in and out. And a lot of a lot of uh, firewalls come out of the box that small businesses use. They come out of the box configured to allow everything out. And then you know, just by the nature of the way they're set up, they they block things coming in. But you got to be more proactive than that. You can't just rely on that. And if so, if one of these things that they mention, the file signature, you know, malicious file, if one of those does get in, then you want to have have it blocked where they can't phone home from the inside, if possible. That's if you're going to hire and pay a professional to do anything inside of your network to protect your business, this would be something I would highly recommend. You hire somebody to install and set up your firewall because you it's very easy to set one of these things up incorrectly and it's going to cause you to have a bad day one day. So, yep. all right. So disable or remove feature or program, remove or deny access to unnecessary 
and potentially vulnerable software to prevent abuse by adversaries. What does that mean? Man, if you've got any software on your computers in your company that you're not using, just get rid of it. And if you have, if you're like a software developer or if you use software, the things that you're not using, the components of that that you don't use, just disable them. Yep. Because what you're doing is you're basically limiting your, your surface of attack, if you will, because you may have some, you know, some PDF reader that's like 12 years out of date. That's some no name brand that you, you know, used like 12 years ago. And maybe they could exploit that against you. You may have something that's running on your computer that there's a known exploit for that they can use that to gain privilege access, you know, to your machine. You know, bottom line, if you don't need it, just uninstall it, um, disable it, get rid of it. Yep. You know, there's a there's a thing inside of the same place people don't know this but there's a lot of things that run on windows that you most average users don't need to be have running and if you go to the same spot in windows where you uninstall software there's a little link on the left hand side that says turn windows features on or off and if you click that a box pops up and there's all these little check mark check boxes that you can check on or off and you'll see that a lot of them are, are checked um there's a lot of things in there that, that some, I wouldn't recommend any <laughs> average user go do this. Have a have somebody who knows what they're doing go through this and evaluate what you need and what you don't need. Um, but the best thing you can have a security professional do if you have a team or have somebody that works on this is have them go through all your systems and start evaluating whether or not you can disable functions within Windows that don't need to be there that could potentially be abused by a hacker down the road. Exactly. That's it. All right. So moving on, antivirus, anti-malware. I like to call it endpoint protection because that sounds antivirus, anti-malware. Sounds like old school to me. Um, but maintain antivirus, anti-malware software up to date and configured to recognize and remove malicious files that have been downloaded or created on the host. I mean, I think most people are going to be familiar with this. This is what is most often associated with security and things have changed. You know, we need to watch for a lot more than we used to watch for, but still bottom line, we still need an antivirus, any malware running on the machines. I would highly discourage against most free versions of this. What about okay. Defender? What are your thoughts on Defender? Windows? So I like having Defender as a, you know, like another layer, uh, potentially. Um, but I'm not comfortable yet to, uh, to, to rely on it. Um, years ago, I was a huge fan of it, you know, then they just kind of quit, quit doing great at it. And then they started doing great at it again. So I'm kind of up in the air. I'm not ready to put my, I'm not ready to put my trust into it yet, but, um, it can be helpful in other things and other layers of things, having it on a computer, if you've got uh, software that can control it and make it do this or that for you, for your advantage, then it's a, then it's a great thing uh, to have there kind of as another layer, though. I'm, I'm not ready yet to just rely on it. So and just understand, folks, that not all antivirus, anti-malware um, is created equal. You really want to be looking for something that's called advanced endpoint protection. Um, that has things like AI built into it, heuristics, which is basically means like, 
the software can figure out that something's bad, even if it doesn't have the exact signature that it's looking for. Um, there's a lot of better features with an advanced endpoint protection product than, you know, Norton antivirus or, you know, a vast free or whatever else is out there today. I don't even know. Um, but important to have it on there, even if you run a Mac, even if you run Linux, even though there's no viruses for Linux, you should still have things monitored. Um, definitely on any endpoint, you should have endpoint protection. Um, because quite frankly, when you go to a hotel or you go somewhere and you decide to connect your computer to the, that laptop even though you sh or that, that Wi-Fi, even though you really shouldn't, when you do, there's no firewall protecting you. And that endpoint protection is really your only line of defense in those types of situations. So I'm not sure if people are really are aware of that. So last thing we're going to cover here before we wrap up, which we didn't do too bad, an hour and five minutes. Yeah. Periodically perform software updates, including vendor patches, OS updates, and firmware upgrades to mitigate exploitation risk. So let's break this up just like they did. What's a vendor patch? So a vendor patch is going to be your your third-party software, um, like your specifically and especially like your Adobe software, which there's Adobe software on almost every computer um, that is out there. But your Adobe software, your, you know, your QuickBooks programs, there's basically any software that people use that's not part of the Windows operating system um, is most likely going to be going to have um, updates that are put out for it. Yep. Um, the thing is about this is we run across people sometimes who feel like they can do this on their own. And that's so like disconcerting, almost disturbing because there's no way that really you can keep up with this because some of these things, they might be, they might put them out once a month. They might put them out every day. They might find a vulnerability today that's actively being exploited. And so they put out an update today. I mean, I don't know, man. I think that this needs to be automated. This is something that, you know, definitely needs to be automated. And I wouldn't encourage people to try to just do it on their own. I agree. I agree with the next one with the OS updates. Depending on your business, vendor patches can be difficult or not. But OS yep. updates, I mean... Windows puts out updates every couple of days at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and how do you manage that? And then, you know, you and I know that the updates don't go so well sometimes. <laughs> you know, you have to pull patches. You have to uninstall them because printing stops working. And, you know, all yeah. the annoying stuff that goes along with Windows updates. Um, but that's what they're talking about here. OS updates, Windows isn't the only only operating system that needs to get updated. Every one of them needs to get updated. Mac puts out updates very frequently. I think every time I fire up my Linux, it updates. I mean, you know, you have to run commands to update it, but as soon as I fire up all my Linux, I, I update it right away. Um, so every operating system has updates and you need to make sure that this stuff is getting done because, you know, as we see a lot of attacks that we've seen recently are around zero days. Um, and I think we're going to see more and more zero days, um, yep. you know, because that's going to be, you know, a lot of times if you're taking care of all this stuff and you're putting all these speed bumps in the road, making it difficult for hackers to fly through your network and do damage, 
you know, the zero days are the only way that they're going to really get in there um, because, you know, we're getting ahead of this stuff quicker and quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you got firmware upgrades. What, what are they talking about there? So they're going to be talking about firm, firmware updates for maybe your firewall, your wireless access points. I mean, pretty much anything that accesses the Internet. Your ring doorbell, your yep. smart light bulb, your smart light switch, your Amazon Alexa, your Google Home, your what else do they have? I'm not sure. I don't use Google Home and I don't Google use Google Home, Amazon Alexa. There's Amazon Fires. There's smart TVs, which I talked about before that, you know, they pretty much stop updating smart TVs after like a year and a half. Um, so pretty much if you haven't bought a new TV in the last two years and it's a smart TV and it's connected to the Internet, it probably has a vulnerability that can be exploited. Mm-hmm. Um PlayStations, they kind of update themselves, but they have firmware updates. When your kid's mm-hmm. annoyed that his PlayStation has to update for a half hour, that's what it's doing. Um, a lot of times, you know, just so people know, with smart light bulbs and smart switches, um, depending on the brand, a lot of times you have to go into the app and you have to go into the, you know, the little three bars at the top and click it and go to settings and it'll sit there and say, you have firmware updates that need to be run. So, it doesn't just happen on its own a lot of times. Some things you can schedule it to happen automatically. I would still go in and check and make sure that they're actually happening automatically because sometimes you'll go in and go, oh, wow, I had that set to update automatically, but it hasn't updated it in, in a year. Well, right. go ahead. Well, and then I would say, like, going back to the category about disabling or removing features or programs, like, if you have a vacuum cleaner, mm-hmm that comes with internet access and a camera on it, um, maybe you don't really need that. Maybe if you can just push the button and it does what it needs to do, right. maybe you don't need oh. it connected to your right. I, I, I It mapped my whole house. It's gotta be connected. It knows where to go based on that. Like, well, yeah. I don't want to store that my shoes. So what, what, <laughs> um, what server is it storing that map of your house on? You know, if it's not storing it internally, putting it up in a, you know, in a risky country on a risky server where they don't care about security as much as we do. I mean, just some thoughts. Or the the product was intentionally designed to collect that information. mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Right. You know, it could be any of those things, right? People need to understand that when they buy technology, you might want to check who's where it was manufactured. Where's, where's the technology at when, you know, I need to update this thing? Where am I calling out to? Am I calling out to the United States? Am I calling out to another country? Um, you know, where does this country operate out of? Um, there's a lot of things that you can evaluate before you decide to buy a particular light bulb. Um, and I caution people to not buy like the smart bulbs and the smart switches that connect to the internet and are constantly connected to your network and and your internet just based on price alone. Right. right. So, you know, you're looking for a bunch of LED bulbs for your house and you go on Amazon, you you find, you know, six pack of LED bulbs for 18 bucks and you're like, oh, bam. You know what I mean? And you just found out that you bought bulbs that were already deprecated by the manufacturer. They're no longer going to be updated. Right. And now you just introduced six devices in your home that can be now exploited by right. a criminal. 
Right. So, hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that's the world we live in today, and that's all I have for this week, Randy. Yeah, pretty talked <laughs> out myself. <laughs> all right, boss. Everybody, we uh, we appreciate you sticking with us. Remember, share out our show to your friends and family. It's the only thing we ask. It's the only fee that we have for delivering this content to you. Exciting news. We have acquired securitysquawk.com domain name. So we're going to have a website very soon to kind of have one location for all this stuff and, and links out to where you can download us and um, probably have places where you can submit questions through that website. So we have questions uh, from the audience that we can take to the show and, and answer for you. But for now, just head over to our social media spots, either on YouTube or Facebook, find one of our posts, drop a comment. We answer questions all the time from there. So we want to thank you. We'll see you next week. Stay safe out there. Take care.